Welcome to Fireside Breakdowns. I'm John. I'm Robin. On this show, we break down some of the most controversial, complex, and even polarizing topics facing our society. We use honest, good faith analysis, backed by research, to form our conclusions. We promise to skew our bias towards what can be factually supported, and to make it clear when we're giving you our opinion versus speaking about actual research. We are human. We have blind spots of personal biases, and they will show up sometimes. But the goal of this show isn't to convince you to see things our way. We want to give everyone a foundational understanding of these complicated topics and present the most truthful information available so that we can discuss and address these issues in a thoughtful and beneficial way. We talk about some pretty heavy stuff on this show, and we tackle topics that might feel polarizing. We do it on purpose. But we do that because we have an important goal in mind. We want to change the way people have hard conversations. And we think we can do that using research and discussion to create common understanding. And since you're here, we hope you want the same thing. We suggest comfortable and maybe having a good drink on hand as we work through this stuff. Welcome to our fireside. They explained themselves this very minute. Uh, one man I saw was very graciously extending 48 hours for the oh government my. to explain itself. Yes. How gracious of him. Um, yeah, that's incredible. Trump himself <laughs> even agreed to unsealing the search warrant yeah. for a time. <laughs> for a time. Till he time. realized <laughs> that they actually until, did have something. Until the DOJ was like, bet. <laughs> They're like, all right. Uh, so when that document was published, then it revealed that the legal basis for granting the warrant was suspected violation of something called the Espionage Act. And so here we are explaining to you what the heck that means and what other profile case, high profile cases you might have heard of relating to that legislation. We're talking about why it applies to Donald Trump and then what this might mean going forward for Trump's candidacy and for his ability to not be in jail. Yeah, this week's patron-only bonus content, by the way, is going to be hilarious um, in a weird sort of dystopian, sad way. Uh, some diehard Trump supporters in the government itself had some pretty ridiculous, just straight ridiculous reactions yeah. to the situation. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, decision to file uh, articles of impeachment against Merrick Garland comes to mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and we're going to laugh through, talk through those in uh, in this week's edition of The Kiln, which is what we're calling the little bonus content episode. Thank you very much to uh, our patron, Jared. Yes, we love it. Thank you. Yes. Okay, okay. So what is this Espionage Act specifically? It sounds pretty serious. I mean, the name alone yes. brings to mind guys in trench coats with briefcases filled with documents and cash meeting in shadowy alleyways to smoke cigarettes and trade national secrets. Yes, that is exactly what it is. Done. I mean, okay, no. It's not that that stuff isn't not involved, isn't not involved in espionage or the (laughs) Espionage Act. (laughs) Exactly. Um, But I can probably confirm that as with all things that they make movies about, Uh, The realities about espionage and therefore what the Espionage Act covers, they're not quite so obvious or glamorous. At a 
very high level, at a very high level, the Espionage, the Espionage Act criminalizes any person conveying information intended to interfere with the U.S. Armed Forces' prosecution of the war effort or to promote the success of enemies. It also made it a crime to convey false reports or to give false statements with intent to interfere with the operation or success of the U.S. military, um, to promote the success of enemies to the U.S. while the U.S. is at war, uh, to cause or attempt to cause insubordination or disloyalty or mutiny or refusal of duty in the U.S. military, to willfully obstruct the recruiting or enlistment of service in the U.S., and on and on. It basically just don't try to take down the U.S. by telling its enemies secrets or work to support said enemies while we're, you know, enemies. So any person found guilty of doing this would be subject to punishments ranging from a fine of $10,000 and a prison sentence of maybe a couple of years um, to much, much larger fines and uh, up to 30 years in prison or death. Yep, death. Espionage is a pretty big deal. Uh, looking at the whole picture really helps put things into perspective, though. It's not like, um, like we're, we're not trying to imply that Donald Trump would be executed for like having boxes of papers at yeah, mar chances are right? Very, very slim. Right, we got to look at this in a historical <laughs> yeah. perspective. Um, yeah. The Espionage Act was passed on June 15, 1917. The history buffs among our listeners may immediately recognize that as a pretty important year. America had just entered World War I. Looking back on things from 2022, this may seem like a fairly non-controversial decision. Although in the research that I found, there are plenty of people who still think that that was just the worst thing we could have done. Um, but at the time... There were a lot of people who thought that that was the worst thing. When yes. World War I broke out in 1914, President Wilson held that America would remain neutral, and a vast majority of Americans supported that stance. Support for neutrality waned, though, over the next few years as the Germans sank unarmed ships without warning over and over and over again. So on April 2, 1917, President Wilson asked Congress to declare war against Germany, and four days later, Congress granted that request. Despite general sympathies for going to war with Germany, there was still considerable fear among the U.S. population of split loyalties among European immigrants, which is, this is a common theme during global conflicts. Uh, we saw this with the Japanese people, um, Japanese Americans being put into internment camps in World War II. Uh, or generally the general Muslim population yes. after 9-11. Yes, or people who were ambiguously brown. Um, yep, well, yep. Yep. <laughs> yep. So due to that fear, President Wilson had warned that the war would require a redefinition of national loyalty. Wilson didn't sugarcoat his words either. He boldly stated that there were millions of men and women of German birth and native sympathy who live amongst us. Therefore, if there should be disloyalty, it will be de dealt with with a firm hand of repression. Yikes. Yeah. So the Espionage Act, as well as um, there's a, a very short-lived, very First Amendment violating <laughs> act called the Sedition Act that was passed in 1918, actually. Um, they were designed to keep socialists, pacifists, and other anti-war activists um, from derailing the war effort. And it was used 
pretty aggressively, especially in the years immediately following the war. Now, this period, you might be interested to know, right after the First World War, was the first Red Scare. Did you know that there were two Red Scares in American history? Because mm-hmm. I actually did not know that there were two Red Scares in American history. I thought there was the Red Scare with McCarthy. And no, apparently we are just periodically terrified of communism. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, this was like the first time that the fear of communist influence and, and communist infiltration into American society drove societal behavior. And uh, not great. I mean, Mm -mm. it kind of helps you understand why the espionage exists. If you think that everybody's worried about the, uh, you know, German next door potentially passing classified information to the Germans overseas so that they can destroy our country. Um, But it's kind of controversial. Actually. Yeah. I mean, well. Because of its nature, that kind of unapologetic push toward really close control of speech and the fact that most of the law exists today as it was written, warts and all, the Espionage Act is is controversial. It was, after all, created with the goal of keeping Americans from undermining the war effort. Its statutes were written fairly broadly and contained a lot of caveats to what we would traditionally think of as free speech like Section 3, which specifically focused on anyone who willfully was insubordination, disloyalty, mutiny, or refusal of duty in the military during wartime. Basically, if you tell somebody not to enlist, you technically could be in violation of the Espionage Act. Yeah. And like a lot of legislation, uh, the Espionage Act combines ideas that seem perfectly reasonable for protecting important elements of our government's function with ideas that um, don't seem to be consistent with our national ideals. We'll put it that way. (laughs) And um, while it has been applied in cases that are very reasonable to the legislation's purpose, it's also been applied in ways that are overtly shady. And in situations where there is a much broader conversation to be had about government accountability. In fact, I've just had a flash of inspiration. Why don't we take a look at some cases prosecuted under the Espionage Act? Oh, yes, let's. And let's start with one of the early cases prosecuted under the Espionage Act and one that only barely makes sense to me. But hey, (laughs) that's 1917 for you. Not a whole lot of that makes sense to me. So in 1917, a man named Robert Goldstein produced a revolutionary war epic called The Spirit of 76. The film depicted the actions of British soldiers during the war in a particularly gritty manner, including violence not typically seen in films at that time. Because they were concerned that the unflattering representation of British soldiers would undermine public support for our wartime ally, the U.S. government seized the film and uh, Goldstein was arrested under the Espionage Act. Um, It does feel very important here to point out that Goldstein was was Jewish and he did have a German background. So the government's case centered on the idea that he had produced this film intentionally as pro-German propaganda with a goal of maligning our allies, breeding disloyalty, and impeding the U.S. military's conscription efforts. Goldstein's arguments that he was simply trying to capitalize on the patriotic vibe of the moment and that the depictions of violence were, you know, accurate, um, that was not enough to convince a jury, and he was sentenced to 10 years in prison. 
and find about $5,000, which is a really long time for making a movie about the Revolutionary War. That's all I'm going to say. But it's also a boatload of money for 1917. Yeah, so much money. And then on appeal, that 10 years was reduced to three years, but that was enough to essentially end Goldstein's career. He did try to go back to Germany and restart, and then that didn't work, and he came back to the United States and essentially died um, poor and in obscurity. Crazy. Yeah. The U.S. government ruining somebody's life through heavy-handed prosecution. Right. And Mm, it is worth noting. Doesn't track that no copies of The Spirit of 76 actually exist. So we cannot, to this day, see the film because the government seized them all, including the originals, and destroyed them. Wow. So we know about it, but we can't watch it. Does the script survive? I don't know. Do we know? I would imagine that the script probably survives, which is how we know for sure what's in it. Um, But Yeah, surely. Or, or, I mean, court records would probably provide those details yeah you know sir did or did did you or did you not film a scene where a british guy just murks this other guy and it's pretty bad yes i did yes okay. i did yes i did because that's war um right. the the train of logic on that is pretty indicative of of um the problem with this overall because if a film about the revolutionary war where not even american but british soldiers are, con- are are cast in a light that is could be construed as negative mm-hmm. if that qualifies like you could pretty much make an argument for anything that wasn't like overt vocal very profuse support for the war effort yeah yeah mm. we should also talk about a more a more recent case i think um, that should be pretty high up in our collective memory. It didn't happen all that long ago. Um, in May 2010, Private Chelsea Manning was arrested outside of Baghdad for downloading and sharing more than 700,000 individual documents relating to the U.S. war on terror in Iraq and Afghanistan. The collection, which became known as the War Logs, included official correspondence sent from U.S. embassies and consulates, secret Pentagon documents, and maybe probably most controversially, um, a video that documents U.S. soldiers film, uh, firing, I almost said filming, which would have been much more acceptable, firing <laughs> on a group of civilians from an Apache helicopter in Baghdad on July 12, 2007. Not... Great. Nope. Uh, Reuters photographer and his driver and two civilian children, uh, they were killed in that shooting. So absolutely horrifying, I think, is a better term for it. Yes. So Manning Manning had access to the documents because of her role as an intelligence analyst, because she felt like the public had a compelling interest in knowing how these wars were being conducted. She downloaded the information and shared it with a popular website at the time, and still, really, right. you've probably heard of it, uh, WikiLeaks, WikiLeaks, um, along with at least four major global news outlets. Um, they all published the content, creating what some have called the biggest intelligence leak in history. Yes. <laughs> yes. 
and now for more than 10 years, conversations about this leaked material, Manning's detention and treatment while in prison, and the U.S. government's pursuit of WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange would occupy a lot of space in conversations about the military and about what information the government keeps secret and what they should be allowed to keep secret. Uh, But I don't actually remember much of that talk, including um, the legislation, the Espionage Act. I, you know, I remember people talking about how bad it was that this happened um, at the time and and all the information that came out. And then kind of the subsequent um, saga of Manning's detention and prosecution. But I don't I really don't remember people talking about the Espionage Act. Yeah, it. It doesn't, I think, get a lot of playtime because honestly, the legislation itself is not easy to parse. It is filled with very, very long sentences with <laughs> lots of commas and so commas. ands and and ands. And so, yeah, I read through it before we did this one and uh, not great. <laughs> not easy. It was written in 1917. Yeah. Um, on top of everything else. So. Just a side note, just really short side note, okay? There's a, a time and a place for whistleblowers in, in the intelligence community and in the U.S. government at large. Um, there are also processes for whistleblowers to use to do it correctly. And the reason people like Manning and Snowden and Aldrich, well, Aldrich James was just a straight-up spy. He wasn't a whistleblower. Um get (laughs) in trouble is because they bypass those procedures. They say they don't. They say they tried. They don't. (laughs) That's all I can say about that. Moving on. (laughs) Okay. So what does, what does, what does this broad and uh, overwrought piece of legislation um, that we're most familiar with in the context, in the context of, large-scale divulgences like WikiLeaks have to do with former President Trump. Why would the Department of Justice list that as one of the reasons for their search of his home in Florida? Well, honestly, it's a matter of paperwork. Uh, The warrant that authorized the search of Trump's place at Mar-a-Lago cited Section 793 of the Espionage Act, which deals with the gathering, transmitting, or losing of national defense information. Time out, time out. Um, Losing classified information is a big deal. And if you ever have to like run it somewhere, those are the most terrifying moments as you're carrying it through like public, like there's rules about how you do it and how it has to, you know, all these things. And you're just like, do not lose the classified it's like, just this overwhelming thought you're like, do you want to get a coffee out. no i do not want to get a coffee i want to go straight to where i'm supposed <laughs> to be going please do not stop do not stop at the red light do not stop at the stop sign just get me there just get me there right now <laughs> right now get me there yesterday i'm done with this already right yeah no <laughs> so while the warrant doesn't specify uh, which part or parts of that section that President Trump is suspected to have violated. Professor Heidi Kitrosser noted in an article for Lawfare that section number uh, 793D is likely the most relevant because it applies to individuals who lawfully accessed material relating to the national defense and who proceeded either willingly to 
convey it to any person not entitled to receive it or obtain the same information and fail to deliver it on demand to the officer or employee of the United States entitled to receive it. So at the same time, very vague and very specific. If you have legal access to the information and you voluntarily give it to someone who shouldn't have it or you refuse to give it to someone who should have it, then you're in violation of that section. Um, Thankfully, the judicial branch has given us a little more to work with, though, as we try to decipher what those words mean in the current context. Yes, because one of the concepts that made the Espionage Act squirrely was its use of the term national defense. Courts have refined the concept of which materials fit the bill. Um, To meet the standards, the materials must first be closely held, quote unquote, closely held. They haven't been made public. Um, They're not available to the general public. Basically, you need to have some sort of access to get that information. The court system also, or often rather, uses the classification system, which, you know, is, uh, well, not everybody knows, top secret, secret, classified are the three big ones that everybody knows about. Um, That pretty much tells you right there that the material is considered closely held. Um, For those, I don't think we talk about this later, but I'll give you a little bit of insider baseball here. Uh, The difference between top secret, secret, and classified is defined by how much damage Mm. it can do to the United States if it it were to get out. Interesting. Um, So... Yeah. So if it's if it's classified, it will do damage to the United States. Usually it's pretty limited in scope. If it is uh, secret, it's something along the lines of it's I think the phrase they use is grave damage, um, which means you could compromise maybe a system or, or a process or something like that. And then like top secret, the phrase used for top secret is my favorite. And that's why it sticks in my head. Um, exceptionally grave damage to the United States or its interests. Oh. Um, Yeah, which makes it seem pretty bad uh, because it is usually something classified at that level. um, If it gets divulged, you are compromising a a source or a method that is very delicate, right? If the like just the existence of the information itself might give away how that information was acquired. So got it. It's. That's bad. That's really, really bad. So if you see top secret documents being held by somebody, um, no bueno. And if you, I mean, but even secret or confidential, it's going to hurt if it gets out. Like it, there, there are, there might be literal teams and programs and entire offices that will have to like scramble and, 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 you know, might be out of work or worst case scenario might be caught and killed. Yeah. That's not good. That's not good. No good. It's no good. Yeah. Sorry. In that side note. I love those kinds of side notes. They're my favorite. Uh, the second factor in that uh, the decision to determine whether or not this information is um, related to the national defense is that their disclosure must be potentially damaging to the United States or potentially useful to an enemy of the United States. Um, so like it could either cause us damage directly, or it could be really useful to someone who would like to cause us damage. Um, 
The courts have also interpreted the word word willfully in that statute to mean that the retention or the sharing of the material must have been done knowingly. I prefer that the interpretation that they meant they just were really stubborn about it. Right. You know, she's strong wheeled. She just didn't want to give it back. She didn't want to give it, which ironically enough might apply to the Mar-a-Lago stuff as well. Mm. Um, hmm. So all of, all of this is, is pretty important context um, because believe it or not, it's not that easy to get a search warrant, especially Underline especially, asterisks especially, one like this, targeting the former president of the United States. I, I can, mm, I feel pretty confident in saying that this was probably the single hardest search warrant to get approved ever. Yeah. Yeah. So it's safe to say that all of these factors were closely considered <laughs> when the statute was included in the warrant that was filed yeah. or the affidavit that was filed right. for the warrant. Side note, again, more insider baseball. I, That's I'm, kind of baseball. I'm in my element here. The short, short explanation of how a federal agent secures a warrant, a search warrant, is basically that the, the petitioning agency, the agent, they have to have a reasonable belief uh, that the subject of the warrant participated in committing a federal offense. Um, they usually then ask a federal magistrate to issue a warrant to search a specific property. Excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. I need to go back. I said reasonable belief. Reasonable belief is actually too low of a legal standard. Oh. They, have, they must have probable cause, oh. probable cause to believe. Okay. So a federal agent secures a search warrant by petitioning the magistrate, um, believing that they have probable cause uh, that the subject of the warrant participated in committing a federal offense. Uh, they usually then ask a federal magistrate to issue a warrant to search a specific property. Um, to have the to have the magistrate or the judge actually issue the warrant, the agency has to provide this written affidavit. Um, which details the reasons they believe that the crime was committed. The affidavit will also argue where. They believe the evidence of the crime will be found on the property they want to search and why they believe that evidence is there. Generally speaking, it's not impossible, but generally speaking, a search warrant isn't going to say, go search this person's entire house for evidence. It is going to be crafted much, much, much more narrowly than that. It'll say, go check maybe the bedroom. It might even be as limited as go check the upper right-hand drawer on this uh, office desk, um, you know, depending on what they're looking for and the quality of the information used to, to structure that affidavit. Um, generally speaking, the more rights that are being violated, the Fourth Amendment in this case, um, by the search warrant, the stronger the supporting evidence has to be to violate those rights legally, which is a weird sentence to say. <laughs> so, um, yeah. If the magistrate believes that the facts presented in the affidavit are enough to support probable cause, they will then sign the search and seizure warrant that allows the federal agents to search a property. Now, that's just the process for getting the warrant. That's the paperwork part of it. The execution 
that there's there's far more limitations on on actually executing the warrant itself usually has to be done between certain hours there are certain protocols that have to be filed if you do this little thing wrong then the evidence that you might gather is moot it won't be used it's suppressed um it's considered fruit uh fruit of the poisonous tree or poisoned tree um it's just bad it's a bad thing you can actually go in with a search warrant acquire evidence that like indicates i don't know a murder happened here shut and uh, open and close case we have all the evidence we need but the warrant didn't cover it in some way or you did something wrong when you executed it and all of that evidence that makes the case gets taken and basically thrown in a dark room and locked away and can never be considered in the trying of the case so yeah executing a search warrant property getting the paperwork right doing all of that is so important because the fourth amendment is a pretty big deal yeah. all right side note over all right so during that search agents successfully collected 11 sets of documents which i'm assuming means that they did it right um, there were five sets of top secret documents so uh what was that um incredibly grave danger exceptionally, exceptionally grave, grave damage. damage that's what it is exceptionally grave damage uh, five sets of top secret documents, three sets of secret documents, and three sets of confidential documents. Agents also took files pertaining to the pardon of Roger Stone. Material, and I say that in quotes because that's what every article said about French President Macron, and a bunch of boxes that were only labeled with numbers. Though there has not been a lot of commentary from the DOJ, it is an ongoing investigation after all. The whole crux of this issue is that Trump removed these documents from the White House and stored them in his home. Like, not the residents at the White House even, but like Florida. Yeah. So, hey, side note again. I love that. Storing classified. Storing classified is like a, it, it is a big deal. You have to get things certified. There have to be inspections. There's like the more classified it is, the greater the security has to be. Like in buildings that I have been in, there are like to get into them, you have to go through guards and then you have to have special badges and then you have to go into a locked room and then there might be a locked room within the locked room and there might be a safe within the locked room, within the locked room, within the building that you have to go through guards to get into for certain pieces of classified. Like, there are a lot of really tough rules for storing this information. You don't throw it in a cardboard box in the basement with a master lock on it and hope that nobody comes along with a set of $5 Lowe's bolt cutters and gets Snoopy. Right. I mean, like, I don't, as I was listening, like, reading through all of the research, I just kept thinking of how many. Um, household staff probably circulate around the house at Mar-a-Lago. Yeah. Like, yeah, I, it, it, it's just baffling to me. It gave me anxiety. I'll put it that way. <laughs> yeah. Like I, if I mishandle a piece of classified at my job, I could get fired. And like, if I, like, if I leave it on one part of my desk instead of in another part, I could get fired. Like, is, is that, you know, like, it's crazy. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, this is horrifying. So we should 
point out here that the Espionage Act isn't the only basis for the search warrant. Um, the warrant also listed a law that makes it a crime to destroy or conceal a document as an effort to obstruct a government investigation and a statute that deals with the unlawful taking or destruction of government documents or records. For example, ripping up your notes and trying to flush them down a White House toilet. Um, that picture will be stuck in my mind for the rest of eternity. Have you seen the like actual pictures yes, of it? Because I mean. they exist. I know. Yeah. That's what I, Just, like, I don't. Oh, you mean the actual, yeah, the no, actual it's, picture. It's, it's crazy. I don't, why? why? Why is that a thing that we as Americans have Apparently, to know I, now? The, the argument the argument that I've heard is that it was just his like habit to do that, to just rip up stuff and throw it in the trash or flush it down the toilet, which let's talk about what that means about Donald Trump's personal business. Habits yeah. That's sus. That's sus. There's that's very suspect for those of us who are not hip to the youth lingo. Right? Suspicious. Sus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Don't, <laughs> what is the what does that mean it's the i forget what he says oh no <laughs> okay no i've got it mixed up in my head i'm thinking of the that's something you watch from a distance <laughs> with the uh <laughs> that's something that is suspicious <laughs> it's a new meme anyway. that's what we should do yep yeah created it right um but all of the laws listed really have to do with papers that the Department of Justice says should not have been in Trump's personal possession. Um, naturally, Donald Trump disagrees. Uh, uh, according to Trump, it shouldn't matter whether or not he brought those papers to his home in Florida because he issued a standing order that any material he removed from the Oval Office to the residents were declassified as soon as they left the office. Uh, presidents mm. do, after all, have power to change the classification status of information. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> problem. <laughs> I have a problem with this. Several experts also have problems with this. They've been quick to call that premise, shall we say, absurd. Absolutely. Making the claim that a president's authority to classify and declassify material is not as sweeping as Trump claims it is. Which only makes sense. The, we'll get into this in a little bit. The president has something called original classification authority. It means he's one of very few people in the government that can actually say something is classified. Almost everybody else can't say something is They can't create mm -hmm. a reason for something to be classified. They have derivative classification authority. They can say this falls under this specific already existing rule for classification. So therefore it is classified. Um, that gives the president a lot of power. Classify something for whatever reason, they might not be able to, because if they did, it would cause irreparable damage to sources and methods or to the United States at large. Like there, there's a compelling reason to keep it classified, even if the president wants to declassify it. That is why we have the review process. So let's take a look at three sources, help us determine whether or not Trump could have accomplished this blanket declassification that I have already said 
you probably shouldn't be, <laughs> probably able, to shouldn't do. be able to do. Yes. Uh, source number one, executive order 13526, which I had a, a really way too much fun typing that over and over and over again. Because for some reason, it brought me back to uh, Lilo and Stitch when all of the aliens are getting their numbers. Anyway. Yeah. Anyway. Executive Order 13526 is part of a series of executive orders that have been issued by U.S. presidents to govern how classified information is handled. It was issued by President Obama in 2009 and was not repealed by President Trump. And it explicitly states that the president is an original classification authority, like you were just saying, um, meaning that he can decide on his own whether information should be classified. But EO13526 is not as flippant about the president's authority to declassify information. The standards for classification under the order are that, uh, for declassification under the order, excuse me, are that the information no longer meets the standards for classification that were previously listed under the order, and that two, the information is declassified by someone who has the appropriate power to do it. So that is like the official who authorized the original classification, if they still have the authority to do so, or their successor if that successor has the authority, so like as long as no one has said that the person in that position can't do this anymore, they can do that. A supervisor of the originator or their successor, if that supervisor has the authority to do so. Or officials who are given written declassification authority by the agency head or the senior agency official of the agency that originated the classification. So, like, not everybody can just go in and say, hey, this is no longer classified, including the president. Including. So, yes. Now, whether or not Trump could have declassified the documents in question is unclear just using this EO, this executive order, as a measurement. There's a lot of ifs here. If he had been the person to classify the documents in the first place, or if he could be reasonably construed to be the supervisor or successor of the person or the agency that classified the documents, and if he had declassified them before leaving the office, there might be a case there. It would be a crummy one, in my opinion, because he still didn't go through the right process to do it. But if, as the Register of Recovered Documents indicates, there was information related to nuclear weapons, then those documents would not have been, would not have been subject to EO 13526 anyway. Right. There's like a, a whole, there are whole categories of documents that this executive order just doesn't even apply to because they're governed by other laws. And yeah. nuclear documents related to nuclear weapons or atomic energy, as it's called, uh, they've totally fallen under a completely different governance structure. Yeah, they have very special rules for those. <laughs> yes, because, you know. Which makes sense. Exceptionally you know. grave damage. World destruction, I do believe, <laughs> right. ranks right up there with right. ex exceptionally okay. grave. Uh, sources number two and three are Article 2 of the Constitution and a Supreme Court case called Navy v. Egan. So Article 2 of the U.S. Constitution establishes the president as commander-in-chief of the U.S. Army and Navy. And in Navy v. Egan, the court upheld the executive branch's authority to grant and deny security clearances, saying that the president's authority to classify and control access to information bearing on national security 
and to determine whether an individual is sufficiently trustworthy to occupy a position in the executive branch that will give that person access to such information flows primarily from this constitutional investment of power in the president and exists quite apart from any explicit congressional grant. And while it does sound like this gives the president a really wide berth when it comes to deciding what to do with sensitive information, once you look at it in the appropriate context, it doesn't seem to clearly apply to the way that Trump handled the documents in question. Um, without knowing too much about what's in the documents, there doesn't seem to be a compelling national security interest that would necessitate moving these documents to his private home as he was leaving office. And again, if he can't prove that he effectively, according to procedure, declassified them before 11.59 a.m. on January 20, 2021, he lacked the authority to declassify them at all. Like, at all. But even if Trump did manage to declassify all of that information, would it even matter in this case? Some experts... Uh, like Ms. Kitroser, uh, place significant doubt on whether or not the classification status of the material actually matters to the inclusion of Section 793 of the Espionage Act in the search warrant. But there isn't a clear consensus on this. While some make the case that the status or that the statute deals only with, quote, national defense material and can't rely on the classification system to determine what counts, others remind us that the system is usually very useful in determining what information meets the standards for closely held and potentially damaging. Right. It's kind of right there on the 10. Right. And at the end of the day, something that five seconds ago was classified top secret and could be could deal exceptionally grave damage to the United States, does not lose its capacity to deal exceptionally grave damage to the United States if it is declassified. Right. And f furthermore, the existence of what was classified information in the public uh, sphere does not necessarily mean that that classified information is not still closely held. Right. If something is leaked, like by Snowden or Manning, and it gets out there, that doesn't declassify it just because the media is talking about it. It's still classified, which means it, by this standard, it is still closely held. So there, eh, this like whole argument about classification, declassification, does that mean it falls under the Espionage Act or not? The Espionage Act does not mention classification levels. It really doesn't. So... It's kind of a moot point. Yeah, it um, It just this whole idea that there would be some sort of a second something left the Oval Office. It was automatically declassified like it's, it's Looney Tunes. It's that feels to me like calling shotgun, right? Or Xing your seat when you get up. It is entirely yeah. dependent on everyone else in the situation complying with the fact that you said a thing. Yeah, it's like Michael Scott yelling, I declare bankruptcy. <laughs> right. Like, right. That's exactly what that's it's exactly. like. This is declassified now. That's not it's how not. this works. Mm -mm. That's just not. Right. So, so, I mean, that's not to say that sometimes we don't need these uh, incredible surprises 
that find loopholes in legislation to help us shore up legislation, right? That's sometimes we have to have those, but uh, the idea to me that this would be the thing that finds the loophole, I don't, it doesn't really jive with right. yeah. what I know about how careful the United States government is about what people are allowed to talk about. Um, yeah. 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 So what happens next? What happens what goes, next? What? Yeah. So the news cycle blew up in mid-August with the execution of the search warrant, including a reference to a potentially ominous sounding statute. So now what? What happens next? Well, the first thing that we have to remember is that this is not the only investigation that involves former President Trump right now. Why do I even have to say that? The Department of Justice is conducting its own investigations into what happened in the time leading up to the January 6th insurrection and into Trump's alleged plan to have supporters in battleground states present themselves as alternate electors. There are also civil and criminal investigations into how the Trump organization valued properties that the company owns in pursuit of more favorable loan terms. In other words, there's a lot going on and Trump will likely stay in the news for one reason or another, especially in the run up to the midterm elections. But what happens next after this search? We have options. There's a lot of options. Yes. There's a lot of options. Um, We know the Department of Justice will decide whether to file charges against Trump, in which case, if they do, uh, prepare for a lot of talk about unprecedented action. Mm -hmm. And there will be be pearls clutched when when that is said. Um, And then a bunch of lawyers and judges and talking heads trying to untangle some very esoteric legal questions and... Uh, no matter what precedents are going to be set mm-hmm. that will impact America for the rest of its existence, however long that is. Counterintuitively, this one is wild, by the way. Depending on how sensitive the data in the documents is, and remember, some of it is incredibly sensitive. It has this additional marker on it that SCI, SCI means super duper secret, basically. <laughs> There's no such thing as above top secret. But there are ways to to restrict stuff even further after it's been classified at that level. So depending on what that information is, it could be really bad if it gets out. It could be just really bad, frankly. Um, And if it is that sensitive, the Justice Department might decide that the risk of disclosure of that information is actually too high to warrant charging Trump with a crime and bringing the case to trial because it could inadvertently expose that classified information to the public. Oh, geez. Yeah. Now, there are, there are ways that like, the handling of classified information in trials is provided for. Like, we have rules around that. We have guidelines for that. But if the information shouldn't even be shown to a judge, you know, or the lawyers working on the case, like if it's just too sensitive to risk getting it out that way, then the Justice Department might just say, we can't. It's just too dangerous. So, yes, theoretically speaking, at least, um, Trump could have committed too big of a crime to face trial. That's let that one just marinate. for Right. Right. That's I don't yeah. know. I just it's crazy to me. It's crazy. 
the yeah. the government might also work to reach a plea deal to avoid that kind of exposure by getting Trump to agree to assess the extent to which he mishandled classified information, who may have seen it, what all it could have entailed, et cetera, so that basically he can help in the cleanup process um, so they can yep. make sure that the threat is contained. And then there's also the congressional investigation of the January 6th attacks on the Capitol. Um, they may have their own uses for some of the information that was acquired, further complicating <laughs> what might happen next. There are essentially a thousand directions that this could go, and no two experts or talking heads seem to be in agreement on what the most likely scenario is. And as for what we think might happen next, we honestly can't say. Uh, let's be honest, it would be unwise uh, to try and make any actual prediction about what seems logical or reasonable, because so much of what has happened in the last three years is anything but logical and reasonable. Mm. Mm -mm. 2022, where logic has come to die. Yeah. 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 The outcome of this, it, it really depends on information that the general public, myself included, um, is not likely to have access to until more solid decisions are made or until it's over. Yeah. Or or ever. Honestly, you know, knowing how yeah, some, sensitive that information is, we may never know <laughs> what factors influence the outcome of this. Yeah. So uh, let's bring this one home. I think I made it pretty clear about. <laughs> what I think about this entire situation, um, but not to put too fine a point on it. This is one of those crimes, potentially, allegedly, Donald Trump, we are not saying he is guilty of anything. Um, he is an American like everybody else, and if he committed a crime, there needs to be a trial, so on and so forth. <laughs> um, but on the surface, it doesn't look great. It's one of the, this is one of those crimes, one of those statutes that it doesn't get a lot of publicity and you know how they sometimes talk about on the media, like this isn't one of those sexy crimes, you know, like, I don't know, running drugs or something right. that like when it's a, when, a, when, a, when somebody gets caught doing it, especially if they're famous, it's like a huge scandal. Um, like this doesn't sound like it doesn't get the same sort of reputation as one of those, mm -hmm. but this is, this is a sexy crime guys. <laughs> <laughs> this is like it's this is a big sexy. deal yeah this is a big deal yeah. um and like i i am personally very nervous about what happened with these classified documents mm -hmm. whether or not trump declassified them when he walked out of the Oval Office. I'm sorry, just the idea so of classification being geographically dependent is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Okay, I'm done. Done. <laughs> Whether or not he declassified them when he walked out of the Oval Office, if that information was shown to the wrong people, it's still damaging. Even if it's not like, oh no, it's, 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 it's unclassified now. Shoot, even unclassified stuff people can't like 
if you're on, if you're working for the IC, you can't just go out and start talking. There are rules that govern that as well. So it's just, a, it's, this is a train wreck guys. That's my final thoughts. Yeah. This is bad. This is bad for everybody. This is bad for America. If, if, if he did in fact, uh, pass any of this information to people who should not know it which is literally anybody who's not read into those programs right that that's i think the thing that stands out to me is like one of the things that was so endearing to so many people about donald trump when he was running for office and when he got elected was that he was not a part of this government bullshit that he was not a part of all of this bureaucracy um, but I think that this points out how dangerous it is to put that level of trust in someone who is not at least incredibly familiar with why the bureaucracy exists, right? Yeah. Because best case scenario, he says, well, I didn't think it would be a big deal. Well, even me, someone who is not a part of the intelligence community, who has no clearances and has like... I have I don't have no concept of the kinds of information that goes into that. Even I know that this is a big fucking deal. So yeah. on what planet would somebody think that this is not that big of a deal? And then so then you have to acknowledge like he had to have known it was a problem. Then why? What is the purpose of taking all of this information out yeah. of you, like his statement about in this whole statement that he um, made that he passed through basically a Fox News commentator, um, his point was just like every American, sometimes the president has to take work home. I'm sorry, what? You don't take classified home. Well, and even like I deal with <laughs> client information, I have access to our client's financial information. And I know that I don't get to store that stuff on my home computer. I don't get to print it out yeah. and leave it on my desk at home. I don't get to talk to other people about it or if I had a housekeeper, leave it for the housekeeper to find. Like, I understand that you, that's not a thing that you get to do. So to equate your documentation from the White House to Florida with the average American having to take work home with them, A, it's pandering, and two, it's it's idiotic. Yeah. Yeah. Bad news all around. Mm. You know what's not bad news, though? You know what's really, really good news? And not even classified? Well, what is that? Firesidebreakdowns.com. Crazy! What? Oh my I know. <sighs> what can they? What can they do there? They cannot find information that um, propose that poses a public disclosure, a disclosure. potentially grave danger to the United States. No, they can find our show notes and every episode of the podcast and links to our social. You can find information about us and every source that we used for this episode and our other episodes. You can also find a link to our Patreon account where you could join and become a patron and listen us to us talk about the absolutely absurd things that Trump supporters are doing and saying after this search warrant uh, was executed. Because patrons of Crazy. all levels get access to the kiln. Bonus content. Bonus. Lots of bonus content. content. So much. 
bonus content. Um, yeah, it's a pretty cool place. You should go check it out. So uh, I think that brings us to, to, to actual like good news, good news. We have right? good news, good yeah. news. Oh, well, yeah. I'm going to read it. it. On September 29th, Nicole. Oh, Aunapu. That's what I would guess. Aunapu. Man, last name's easy. Will become the first Native American woman in space. Man will be the mission commander for NASA's next launch to the International Space Station this fall. But in addition to her designation as a NASA astronaut, Man is also a Marine Corps colonel. <laughs> ah, every time. Every time that word gets me because my brain's like, that is an L. Yep. And you never took French, John. So it's going to be pronounced as an L. It is. Let's try that again. In addition to her designation as a NASA astronaut, Mann is also a Marine Corps colonel that has racked up or who has racked up more than 2,500 hours and 47 combat missions as a fighter pilot. She's kind of badass. <laughs> So cool. She's so so cool. cool. And she's an engineer, but no big deal. No big deal, right? Just one more. One more thing. Um, in an interview with Indian Country Today, uh, Mann said that it's very exciting, understatement, to be the first Native woman in space and emphasize the importance of sharing this achievement with the indigenous community so that Native American kids can see that barriers to this kind of achievement are being broken down. She and the other crew members will spend six months on the International Space Station doing various scientific things like 3D printing human cells. No big deal. No big deal. Just making, mm -mm. making biology, yeah. like literally. Literal actual cells, um, no big deal. Yeah. Man will, uh, she's also announced um, or has been announced to be part of the Artemis 3 team that aims to return to the moon sometime around 2025. Ah! This is just cool. Um, should she be chosen as part of the lunar landing team, um, she will be part of a team that will actually spend time on the surface of the moon. Man would therefore be the first woman and the first native person to step on the moon. It's a big fucking deal. It's so cool. It's so cool. It's, <laughs> we usually yeah. launch it on the Monday ahead. We try. Sometimes they're a, a day or two delayed. Um, and you will be able to listen to our crazy speaking then. We're so happy that you're here to listen to us. Thank you so much. And until we speak again, take care of each other. Yeah.